This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 189 from Monday, May 10th, 2010. Johannes Kepler and his laws. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Hi, Pamela. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Just a little bit too hot here. Right. Well, you uh, you need to turn off all your fans to keep your place nice and quiet so, so we don't bother the listeners. Just another sacrifice. That we make. I, I am sitting in a sauna for the sake of better audio. Perfect. Um, I'm sure they're very grateful. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Nicholas Copernicus ch- changed our understanding of the universe when he rearranged the solar system to put the sun at the center, with the Earth becoming just another of the planets orbiting. But the movement of the planets didn't really match the theory, not until Johannes Kepler came along with his ellipses and everything finally worked out. So we're going to do another of our two-parters. This week, we're going to talk about Johannes Kepler and the three immutable laws of uh, planetary motion. And then next week, we will talk about the mission, Kepler, which is about one of the coolest missions that is up in space right now. It could very well discover Earth-sized worlds orbiting other stars. It's guaranteed to. Well, we hope. We hope. Nothing's guaranteed. We hope. So that's uh, so that'll be next week. So this week we're going to talk about the man, and next week we'll talk about the mission named after the man, since uh, people have been enjoying that. So, all right, so let's talk about, about Kepler. And I guess, you know, with a little bit of, I guess we should go back and do a little bit, retell some history, right, which is that we started out with Ptolemy placing the uh, Earth at the center of the universe, but keeping really good records of the bizarre motions of the of the planets going around around in the sky and he would to account for these bizarre backwards motions he would put circles within circles but in the end he came up with some pretty solid math to back it up copernicus came along and said well let's try instead putting the earth at the uh you know as just another planet put the sun at the center but the problem with that is that the uh, um the, the math didn't work out the the planets didn't follow nice circular orbits around the the sun. So, where does the story go from here? Well, this this is one of those things of they were trying to be data driven. They were trying to work off of records. And when Kepler came along, he he first of all was someone who wasn't going to make his own observations. So he's relying on other people's data and he's trying. That's for the little people. <laughs> well, no, it was actually more complicated than that. Kepler, he didn't have an easy life. He was born a month premature back when being a preemie wasn't the type of thing we had NICU units to take care of. Um, he also had smallpox as a child and the combination of of being sick of being premature it's hard to tell exactly what it was that was the primary cause but he didn't have good vision and without good vision it's it's kind of hard to 
look up and make good, accurate observations of the night sky. You really have to have good eyes to do that. And he didn't have that. So here you have this, this person who was deeply inspired by a comet as a kid, was mathematically driven, was said to be mathematically brilliant, and all records point to that being true. But he just didn't have it in him as, as an individual to be the record keeper. And that's fine. The world needs theorists. Right. And this was a time just before the telescope was was really doing a lot of work. And you had people like, like Tycho Brahe, right, who were making these really detailed observations. But, but Brahe was keeping them all to himself was the problem. Right, but but une- with the unaided eye, though, yes. right? Right, they weren't using a telescope. They would they had a sighting tube that they would you know get lined up with the star to record the position and record the planet's positions and all that. But but you really needed your good eyeballs to be able to to get an accurate fix on the position of everything. Right, and and just to be able to make out the fainter and fainter objects and to differentiate between the different objects when things got crowded. Yeah, you had to have good vision. You had to be careful and Kepler had the careful going for him, but he didn't have the good vision. And so here he was working very hard to come up with good theories. And he's working very hard to have everything be mathematically centered. And while he's working on all of his cosmologies, he's working as a school teacher. I love this. He he wasn't a professor. He was a school teacher. So while he's working on all of his theories, he's also working as a school teacher. And um, he eventually ended up sending his work out to several people, Tycho Brahe being one of them. And he he sought their opinions for his theories of how things might be aligned. This was when he was still working on geometric models where he said, take a polygon, inscribe a circle within it, circumscribe a circle outside of it. One of these spheres, rather, uh, one of these spheres, this might be how we get at the the surfaces that the planets orbit on. But he was working from imperfect data. When you're working from imperfect data, you can come up with, with theories that fit beautifully to your imperfect data but are wrong. And so when he sent his work out to, among other people, Brahe, he got back comments. And the comments he got back from Brahe were very challenging and and they they forced him to look his things over and... Brahe called into question, well, how accurate were Copernicus's records? And it was Kepler was working on Copernicus's data. How accurate was that? And um, eventually Kepler ended up going out and visiting Brahe in Poland and working with Brahe's numbers. And this was actually very difficult because, well, first of all, he had to get there. That's not too big a deal even back then. But once he got there, he had to convince Brahe and Brahe's assistants to let him have direct access to the numbers. And once he had that direct access, he wasn't allowed to copy any of the numbers for his own work. So he had to sit there and work directly from Brahe's notes. So he worked hard to try and improve his work and went back home and continued to work on the mathematics that he'd started on. And he was trying very hard to just make sense of Mars, just one lousy planet. And um, he 
he kept up his dialogue with Brahe until eventually Brahe invited him to come work for him in Poland. And this wasn't a pretty process. The initial going back to Poland was precipitated by Brahe and Kepler getting into a massive fight and Kepler leaving and they had to make things up and then eventually work out job description and living arrangements and salary and all these sorts of things. And once it was sorted out, then Brahe finally got to share all of his data with Kepler, who finally got to turn all of this data into an honest, real, workable theory of our solar system. Right. And and I don't know if we mentioned Kepler was from Germany, right? He was from Austria, actually. Well, he lived in many different nations. I mean, this is one of those things that we just don't think about is these these are people that, that moved all over the place. He was born in the German state of Baden-Wiederberg, and he was of royal descendancy, actually. His grandfather had been Lord Mayor of the, time, the town of Wilderstadt. But he, he ended up living in Poland at one point. He ended up living in Austria at one point. So he lived in many different places. When he went to go work with Brahe, he'd been teaching at a school in Graz, Austria. So he was of German descent, teaching at a school in Graz, going to see Brahe in Poland. So he, he was all over Europe. But he was staying in Protestant Europe. Right. And then, unfortunately, Brahe died. Yes. And that added more complications because at that point, Kepler was finally, finally getting ready to start publishing his theories. And he had to publish them based on Brahe's work. But to publish them based on Brahe's work, he had to have permission from the descendants of Brahe to to use the results of Brahe. And it ended up being a mess. And finally, Kepler was able to publish everything, but he had to publish everything using his own money to do it, which was a bit problematic when you're a poor mathematician relying on royalty to occasionally pay you. And so what and what was he working on? You know, when you say he had to publish, what was the heart of what he was he was saying? Well, the the first he he had two major publications that that turned out to be true. The first one was he was working on trying to describe how planets actually do orbit. This work culminated in a, in a book called Astronomy Nove, uh, A New Astronomy, which is strangely the name of so many books over history. We just keep naming things, New Astronomy. New Astronomy, a yeah. new kind of science, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're not real creative types. Yeah. But in Astronomy Nove, he included his first two laws of planetary motion. And the first law is every planet moves in an ellipse which surprisingly no one had tried mathematically before. This is one of those things that baffled Kepler. Everyone knew Aristotle had said things should orbit in circles. And Kepler had figured, well, they knew the circles didn't quite work. They'd come up with these epicycles. They'd come up with these deferents. That's where, first of all, they put the planets on circles that roll around on the orbits. And then they off-center the circles with the deferents. It's a very complicated system, and it still didn't quite work. And uh, Kepler figured someone along the lines must have said, well, a circle is just a special part of an ellipse, and tried that, and it turned out no one had. And so he was the first person to figure out, oh, that that works. And don't, don't we, we can get an, an, an ellipse from slicing a cone, right? Right. Any cone, take it, slice it at a diagonal, and you get an ellipse. And another way to get it is if you take two tacks and put them into a thumb board or a tack board rather, and 
attach a pen with a string to those two different, we call them foci, but in this case, they're physically tacks on a tack board. As you move your pen around at the extreme of, of that point in the string, it's going to trace out an ellipse where when you're along the line that the two tacks are on, that's where you end up getting stuck closest to one of the tacks. And when you're at the midway point between the two tacks, there you're able to get the furthest away from the two tacks. It ends up shaping out the entire ellipse. Right. So uh, if you want to do an experiment, want to, sh- to show the kids how ellipses are formed, give this a shot. So, you know, either make a cone and go at it with a bandsaw or take two tacks <laughs> and uh, yeah, take two tacks, put them into a piece of wood or put them into a, you know, um, a board on the, on the wall and then grab a pen and draw out, you know, always keep the string tight and let it and let the tacks define how far the string can bend and or how far the string can go in different directions. And you'll, you'll trace out an ellipse. And this is the shape that the, that the planets are following. But I guess we're, in the solar system, we're not looking at tax. We're looking at the sun and the other foci actually doesn't physically exist. So one of those two tax, one of those two foci, that's the location of the sun. And the other foci is just a mathematically existing place. And just to add one more thing, if you're working with little kids and you want to explain conic sections, get yourself an ice cream cone, wrap a string around it at a crazy diagonal, and then eat around the edge to reveal where the string is. And then you can use flour or the top of an uneaten ice cream canister and carve out the shapes. First the round for the complete cone and then the crazy ellipse from once you've eaten down to your string. Right. That sounds good. I'm going to go do that experiment right now. <laughs> um, but right. And and that's the trick. And, that's, and so he tried a bunch of different shapes, right? He followed some of the bizarre movements and he tried some other some other shapes as well and but in the end it was the ellipse it was this slice of a cone, of a cone that that perfectly matched the the motions that the planets followed right and and in the exact same a new astronomy publication astronomy nove he also published his second law of planetary motion that a line joining a planet and the sun sweeps out equal areas during equal intervals of time and what this means is when a planet is particularly close to the sun it's going to chug along on its orbit much, much faster. But when it's further away from the sun, it's going to move much slower. So if you look at the skinny, not quite a triangle swept out in a couple of days of motion when a planet is far, far away from the sun, the area of that not quite a triangle is equal to the area of a much stouter segment of the circle that swept out when the planet is much closer. Right, right. And so you can imagine actually, so so like hold a stopwatch, watch how far the planet goes, stop the stopwatch for a set amount of time, be it, you know, minutes, seconds, hours, and then fill in that shaded area that the planet has has made. And that that number should change every should should be the same amount of area every time. And and you can actually do this if you have fairly good planetarium software. Set up your screen so that the sun sits at the center and turn on the planets and make sure you get a couple of them up on the screen and step through it, say a week at a time and 
print out, kill a lot of trees, print out for each one week interval. And then you can use tracing paper to combine all of these images into one. Or if you're particularly computer savvy, just screen capture and layer these images together and use Photoshop and transparency or something to make an aggregate image. And you can see exactly how it moves so much faster when it's close and so much slower when it's further away. Right, right. And that's that that thing with comets, right? Like when we yeah. see comets, they're they're following these very elongated elliptical orbits around the sun and that tail shows up as they're getting very close and if you see these cool animations it looks like the comet you know whips around the sun and then slows down as it's heading away with Halley's comet this is particularly amazing to think about it has an orbit of over 70 years but it's only in the inner part of the solar system where we can see it readily for less than a year at a time so we've got two laws of planetary motion. Planets yes. follow ellipses and the area that the planet you know fills in of its of the ellipse of its orbit is the same amount when you look at the time. Right. But I know he's got three laws. Right. So both of those he was able to publish in 1609. And this was, remarkably enough, the same year that Galileo first turned a telescope up towards the sky. And one of the things that Kepler doesn't get enough attention for is the work he did with optics, the work he did trying to understand how light gets refracted by our atmosphere, trying to understand why is the moon red during an eclipse. Optics and reflections, it it was something that deeply intrigued him. And so as soon as he could, he got his hands on a telescope and he started trying to understand how is it that lenses work? What are the images that project into the eye. Kepler's the one who actually figured out when you look at a tree in your yard, that image that you see, well, your brain has flipped it right side up. Your eye actually has all of the images upside down on the retina where it's getting detected because the lens in your eye flips images, but then your brain flips them back. And Kepler, he's the one who figured that out before we had any understanding of well, what a brain even really is. He, he attributed it to the soul, but it was along the right lines, and that's still a pretty cool achievement. So when did the third law come along? The third law came along in 1619, after he'd uh, gone off and worked with lenses and telescopes and everything else. And the, the third law, it says the square of the orbital period of a planet is directly proportional to the cube of the semi-major axis of the orbit. This is where he just started. rolls off the tongue. It just yeah. rolls off the tongue. This is where he finally moved beyond just looking at the orbit of Mars. And he started looking at the rest of the solar system, putting all of the pieces together. And one of the biggest works of his life was the Rodolphine Tables. These were published in 1623, finally. Again, held up by debates with the Brahe family. And in them, he tabulated predictions for all the different planets. Now, they weren't entirely accurate. And there are some early detractors of of Kepler who looked at these tables and said, well, he didn't get the transits of Mercury and Venus absolutely correct. But once you modified the tables with new data, once you corrected so that everything was perfect, all of his theories worked. 
and we were finally able to get a mathematical scale size for our solar system. We could figure out what our distance is from the sun relatively, and then using ratios, say how far away everything else is from the sun as well for the very first time. Now, if, as as I recall, I mean, he was an astronomer, but he was also an astrologer. Yes. And and his like day job was often doing horoscopes for for people. <laughs> yes, he actually when he was in seminary, he he didn't go to university to become a mathematician. He initially planned on becoming a minister, and the times he lived in were very different from ours theologically and scientifically and in every other way. Physics and astronomy weren't tightly related yet, and so he spent his days in university studying mathematics, studying religion. He he was a devout Lutheran, which got him in a lot of trouble. But he also cast horoscopes for all of his classmates and became renowned for accurately casting horoscopes. And in many of his publications, he, in early drafts and in some publications, even in the final drafts, attributed a lot of what he saw to planets in the sun have souls, to looking for the astrological concepts that could be better understood through his mathematical understanding of the planets. He was trying very hard to pull all these different realms together. He felt that you could study the intelligent design of the universe through physics, that God communicated through physics. And astrology was part of that, where it was how our lives were being influenced. It's it's a very metaphysical way of looking at things, which today I think would get you promptly laughed out of an institution and uh, accused of woo-woo science. But in his time, it was acceptable. And he actually, through the years, um, would do things like go to courts that were Catholic and say, no, I'm Lutheran. And he was able to keep everything somehow lined up and centralized in a way that allowed him to do excellent mathematics, allowed him to do amazing astronomy, and still maintain this belief in astrology and this this very strong Lutheran faith. So, uh, so he he produced the Rudolphine tables, mm-hmm. and and that was the that completed the third law of of. Kepler's laws of planetary motion. So what happened then? Well, that was pretty much his culminating work. Uh, At that point, when they came out in 1623, he wasn't exactly a young man. He was born in 1571. He was in his 50s. He was a teacher at that point. He was having problems with the Reformation, with um, the rise of or re-rise of the Catholic Church. His poor mother, as a result of one of his pieces that was very much an allegorical text, uh, he wrote a piece called Somnium, The Dream. And it led to his mother, after his death, being brought up on witch trials. And as this ended up getting circulated, it caused problems because people couldn't separate out the allegory from the real science. And he ended up having to rewrite it with more footnotes than were in the original text, trying to explain what was allegory, what was scientific content. And he unfortunately ended up spending a lot of his later years just improving and improving and improving on what he was doing and also trying to figure out how the heck to communicate it in a way that didn't get, well, his mom brought up on a witch trial. And that's troubling. 
Right. And, and so when did he die? He ended up dying in 1630. Uh, he lived from December 27th, 1571 to November 15th, 1630. It was a good long life considering the, the time that he lived in. And he accomplished a lot of work, published a number of books. And what's interesting is his work was never as loudly embraced as others of his peers. And it's only been in the recent 1900s that people have been working to collect everything together. And and I think he may have just the, the problem that some of the works he did really awesome. Some of the works he did a little woo. And that caused different communities to give his work some distance. Right. And what was his, I mean, how was he received by by some of his contemporaries, right? I mean, Galileo was working around the same time. Galileo actually pretty much ignored, much to Kepler's dismay, his new astronomy. Kepler published a, a treatise praising the dialogues written by Galileo. And then when he finished his new astronomy, sent a copy off to Galileo and Galileo never really said anything. So that that must have been frustrating. And he had the same problems with other people reading his work, and they'd correspond with him, but he just didn't get the public acknowledgement that he might have wanted. Hmm. That's too bad. I mean, it's, but it's it's the same story that we hear time and time again. Yeah. You know? It's just they, they do amazing work that resonates for through astronomy, and they're just not recognized in their in their time. Well, he just his work wasn't immediately accepted. It was complicated. It was pure math and it changed everything and it wasn't observational like what Galileo did. So Galileo and Descartes, they completely ignored him and no one else really said very much. Yeah, I mean I, I think I mean I really think that the three I guess the four people that all kind of came together, right? You've got you've got Copernicus with sort of like a big bold, let's just try this, you know, let's just put the sun in the middle and see what happens, but you know, things didn't really work out. And then you had Brahe making the really detailed observations but not really having any place to put it. You had Galileo making these observations and and seeing things out there but not necessarily having, you know, and he was backing up things that Copernicus was saying, but not right. really having the the detailed observations that really explain things. And then you had Kepler, who really brought in the math. You know, those four are really at the heart of, the, of that whole Renaissance time that changed everything. And what ended up happening is after Kepler's death, one of his other works, uh, an epitome to Copernican astronomy, it was embraced and passed around. And so it was after his death that his work was finally acknowledged and people finally started reading it and shipping it off to other people to read and embracing the idea of elliptical orbits. And this is, and even today, it still gets used, still gets taught, yeah. still do the math. So it, it still comes into play. And Newton was was able to take and finally put something other than the soul as the basis behind what makes planets orbit. Right. And I think that helped as well, having something other yeah. than the sun's soul be the motivating force. So I think we can, we can wrap it up here. But next week, we're going to talk about the Kepler mission, which I guess doesn't have a lot to do with Kepler. But, um, planets. But it's planets. It's seeking planets, which is, which is pretty amazing. So... And 
and it's a, it's one of the most exciting missions I've ever now. I'm really looking forward to that. So we will talk to you next week, Pamela. Sounds good, Fraser. I'll talk to you later. This has been Astronomy Cast, a weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos. Show notes and transcripts for every episode are available on our website. Check it out at astronomycast.com. You can send us any comments, questions, or feedback to info at astronomycast.com. We read every email. The show is a nonprofit educational resource provided by Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. We're supported through the kind donations of listeners like you. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. taxpayers. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend it to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Music is provided by Travis Searle. The show was edited by Preston Gibson. Astronomy Cast is produced at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, with generous support from Universe Today.